Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to the Chase the Vase podcast. I'm your host, Brock Bevel. I am here with legendary. Dude, I feel like I need like that drum roll from a man, Shane Larson, man. You're not from Boise, right? Where are you at in Idaho? I'm technically in Napa, but I, here's the thing, Brock. I'm a Merville's finest, so from Meridian, Idaho. That's my hometown. So whenever people ask, I'm like, I'm from Meridian, Meridian, Idaho, but I currently live in Napa. Yeah, this guy's legendary, guys. I just want to let you know, he's a podcast host. He's the podcast host of Game Time Guru. Now, check this out, dude. This was You blew this up this week on Facebook, so I'm going to do it as well. 92 countries, bro. Yes, sir. We finally reached the, that, that point. So yeah, it's been a blessing. Man, people don't even understand what it takes, that grind. Tell me about the grind. And top 40 in Germany, which is like, is it translated into German or what the heck's going on? No, nah, man. The thing is, what's cool about it is I had actually just interviewed a guy who lives in Germany. He played basketball over there. So that's kind of why he has all of his you know former teammates and former coaches and so forth, all the professional athletes over there in Germany probably listening to it. Plus, he's a teacher, so he probably has students listening to it as well. I'm assuming that's where all the downloads came from this last week. So that's why. It's not translating to German, but uh, yeah, uh, I'm always trying to interview. Could you imagine hearing your voice in German, dude? I speak terrible German. See, that's the, that's the problem. I took German in high school, and just hearing myself say it, it's, it's disgusting. So yeah, it's, it's a good thing it's all in English. Dude, that's awesome. Well, congratulations on that. I know you're a husband. You're a father. You work for a a Fortune 500 company. You're, I mean, you're doing big things out there, man. I'm, I'm super honored to, to have you on my show. Uh, this is my boy, Shane Larson. I'm going to give you some ways to contact this guy at the end. I know you're, we connected through your podcast where we got to talk about addiction and sports. I know that that is your love. Tell me a little bit of your background on this sports. Like, how did you get into broadcasting? Man, it's a funny story, Brock, because I've been around sports my whole life, right? I've been an athlete my whole life. But when I was a little kid, I always told people I was going to be the next Stuart Scott. Uh, Stuart Scott was an ESPN Sports Center anchor. Um, rest in peace. He passed away after his battle with cancer a few years back. I think it was 2014 or 15. Anyway, he has an amazing book called Every Day I Fight. Anyway, he's awesome. Um, and I wanted to be like him. But see, here's the deal. As we all get older, right? Like we start to realize like, oh, I'm not going to be in the NBA. Like there's a time in a lot of athletes lives, they realize they might not be playing at the next level necessarily. And, and that's okay. There's a select few the elites get to do that the ones who have that, that talent level and the work ethic. So I realized like I wasn't gonna be playing, but I still wanted to be involved in sports. And so the funny thing is, is I was like, well, I'm gonna go to school, I'm gonna go to college, and I'm gonna get a, a journalism degree. And I'm gonna work my way up the corporate ladder. And I'm gonna work there. Well, Funny story is, Brock, when I get into Boise State, I was 28 years old when I got my bachelor's degree. So I'm a non-traditional student. I took, I was working full-time, always just going to school part-time, whatever. So I'm in my final, uh, final year at Boise State. I'm 28 years old, brand new father. My boy had just been born. And we had this guy who's the play-by-play -play announcer for Boise State football show up to class. And I'm like a kid in a candy store in the back of the class. There's all these 19, 20-year-olds who have no idea who this dude is. But I've been listening to this guy for years. So I'm raising my hand left and right in that classroom, just asking tons of questions, just hella questions, just asking him things. He's answering all my questions. And I'm like, okay, what's the next steps for me, Bob? What do you think I should do if I'm, I'm an aspiring broadcaster or just aspiring on-air personality? He told me one thing, Brock. He says, well, Shane, you aren't going to Syracuse. You're not going to Northwestern or Arizona State, which are some pretty big journalism schools that kind of get you in the door really quickly. He goes, you're not going there. So 
you need to go home and start recording something, even if it's just into your computer and pretend that you're watching a game and you're analyzing a game, you need to record. He said, because everybody can talk sports with their buddies, but when you have to analyze a game or you're doing play-by-play or you're doing anything, it's completely different. And so that's what I did, Brock. I went home, I started recording and I said, as soon as I started doing that, I was like, you know what? I'm not going to work for somebody else. I'm going to start my own show. I'm going to do that and I'm going to figure it out. And back then no one did podcasts. So I had no idea how to start one. I was Googling everything. Um, none of my friends did them. Now everybody does podcasts, but yeah, I went home, Googled it and figured it out. It took me a couple of months to really figure out how I could even record something and put it onto iTunes. Like that was a foreign concept at that time, but that was five years ago and been re- recording one episode a week ever since I launched in January of 2017. And it's kind of just taken off from there. And you've had some dope guests on there. Who's been your, like your, like who was your favorite episode? It's probably going to shock a lot of people. Because I know for me, I just recorded one with this lady named Lena Sabola. I had no idea she was trafficked. And her story that took her from Ukraine to ended her up in Egypt, dude. And then like her story redemption. I was like, I would have never seen this or heard about this had she not been on the podcast. So it was shocking. What about you, man? What do you like? Man, it's people ask me this, bro. Kind of similar to what you're saying. When I get to meet new people... I don't care if you're a big name player who's well known across the entire globe or if you're just a high school athlete, everybody has a story, but there's so many. I've had over 200 plus, 230 plus episodes of interviews, but you know, I got to interview my my favorite player when I was growing up. His name was Roberto Bergerson. He uh, played for Boise State, was drafted into the NBA, um, ended up going to the Portland Trail Blazers. And then he has a story there that I didn't know about. And it had to do with Scottie Pippen getting traded to the Blazers and kind of knocking him out of a, a spot as a rookie and his journey since then. But like, being able to interview him on my show years later, I was in fourth grade when he was playing and I got to interview him as a fourth grader for like 10 minutes and then get his autograph because he was my favorite player. But then I grow up right 20 years later almost. And I'm like talking to him on my show, learning about his journey. And while he wasn't like, you know, the Michael Jordan or anything like that in the state of Idaho, especially in the Treasure Valley, which is the surrounding area of Boise, he's pretty well known. He still is. He's, he's very well known around here. So not only did I get a chance to talk to my favorite player back then, but I got to hear stories that I don't think many people even knew because people who listened to it were like, I had no idea. So I was able to kind of, I guess, uncover some of those, if you will. And it was, it was a really cool experience. That's cool, man. We didn't come on this podcast to talk about sports, which everybody knows you and I, we could do it all day. But uh, what I want to talk about, what intrigued me the most, man, is the ability that we had to punt a little bit and talk about this mental, mental health. I know that you're in the sports world. I don't know if you just saw the article and that just came out this week on Chelsea Christ. Did you, were you able to read that? She was the Miss, what was she? Miss USA 2019. That's what it was. Okay. It's clicking in my head though. Uh, that, that specific headline. So this just came out, man. This happened January 30th. It came out on People Magazine she was the 2019 Miss USA. And this weekend in New York City, she climbed to the top of the 60-story building and jumped. And what was interesting is as of late, Shane, she's been on Netflix shows. She's been on TV. She's been doing, I mean, people are, this, her personality is contagious. They're like, she loved to laugh. She loved to shine. Like, they, these are the things you're hearing we don't see is what's going on like in our heads. I want to talk to you. I know that you and I have a personal relationship. We've talked about some of the some of the mental illness and I want to hear from you man what your opinion of this is, where you started struggling with it, 
if you don't mind, man, I, I would love to be open about this. We need to talk about it. You know what I mean? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, that's a terrible story, first off. But unfortunately, I think, Brock, as we all know, if you listen to your show and the people you've spoken to in the past, and if you just connect with people around the world, just in your own city, in your own family, for that matter, close acquaintances, the story that you just shared right there isn't too uncommon. It's unfortunate, but it's not uncommon. And that is the problem, I think, is what we're running into. So yeah, I mean, I've battled with my own struggles in my own life, and I still do to this day. But I do have like, yeah, some some big time experiences for me because people will even look at me, Brock. Sometimes they'll be like, oh, I got a great job. You work for a great company. You've got side hustles that are generating revenue, like the perfect, you know, you got a family that's amazing, a wonderful, beautiful wife with, you know, amazing children and all this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's the American dream. You know, that's what they say. But like, I do struggle on the inside and I've struggled very, very hard and badly. And I've been in some very dark moments in my life as well that I had to crawl out of. When you talk about uh, the struggle, there's some people that may have mental illness or, or may not. But when you say like you've experienced it, can you dive into your life and kind of like just as a tool, as a teaching mechanism for other people, what does it look like for you? Because everybody's different. We see the movies where the dude's in the shower and he's naked in the shower and the water's hitting him and he's struggling. And he's th- but what does it really look like? You know, for me, it, it was a smile on the outside and then just pain on the inside going home. Let me rewind the clock, if you don't mind. Um, and can I talk about my story back in about 2010, 2011? Let's go. Let's go. Well, that's what I want to know about. Yeah, let's, let's do this. So people can probably relate to this in, in a little fashion here, I guess. So in 2010, I returned home from a church mission. I had served for two years in, in um, Brazil. When I got home, from my church mission, I was trying to start my life, like figuring out, okay, I got to get a job. I go to college, got to do my thing. And I ended up meeting a girl, you know, I was 21 and she happened to be 18. Um, I didn't know she was 18. And when I first met her, the first day I met her, I I had no idea. I thought she was 21 at least because that was the job requirement that we met at work in the summer and you had to be 21, but come to find out like her mom had the connections to get her in there. She happened to be 18 and just within a week, they beguiled you, bro. Dude, she was fresh out of high school, right? So it was, uh, one of those situations, it kind of like sounds creepy, but it wasn't like I wasn't being a creep. It's just, I literally couldn't tell. And we had some good moments, right? The thing is, I'm not here to bash on my my ex-spouse, but I'm going to get to that point. I met this girl. We ended up hitting it off. It was awesome. And uh, within a year, it, and it wasn't just overnight, like it was a year later, a year and four months, if you want to get into the details, we got married. So in 2011, I was married. We got married right after I turned 23. So it was right after I turned 23. I was young and so was she, you know, and, and we were young, but we were kind of growing. Uh, but what happened, Brock, is when I say I was putting a smile on my face and coming home in pain, it wasn't always like that. But as everybody knows, in a marriage, there are struggles. You have different personalities, different ways of handling conflict. Uh, there could be a faith crisis inside of the marriage itself. So one person is believing in something, the other person is struggling, and that can cause conflict. There's just a lot. When you add the pressures of school, which I was in school at the time, work, animals, responsibilities that we had, and we didn't even have children, thank goodness. Uh, but the thing is, is we were struggling through that. But, you know, I was going to church all the time, trying to keep a smile on my face and saying, okay, I'm doing the right things here. I was trying to do what I thought was right all the time, going to work with a smile on my face. But there were a lot of times about a year into our marriage where it just became super toxic. And marriage is tough, man. And that is right when like, you know, I always battled with anxiety, just that was natural for me when I was younger. Sports provide like that caused anxiety a lot, you know, for me sometimes. But, you know, I didn't understand true anxiety and depression until the second half of my first marriage when 
it was so toxic. And it wasn't just her. It was me too. I look back on those things that I was doing, Brock, the way that I would speak to her, the way that I would handle certain situations because I felt I had had enough. I had been treated so poorly. So like, I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm allowed to say what I'm about to say now because I've taken a lot, you know, which isn't necessarily the right way to go. And so we'd always have these conflicts back and forth, back and forth. And it got nasty. It got really, really nasty in our marriage. Nothing like physical abuse or anything of that nature. So I don't want people thinking that there was no cheating involved or anything of that nature on our front. But it was so unhealthy in our home. But we continued to just live our life because I was like, well, at that time, like divorce wasn't an option. Like we were like, well, we're still going to keep going. And that's where I battled because I was like, am I happy? Is this really going to be the rest of my life like this? What's going to happen? And so as a young guy, as you know, with the, the faith that I've been brought up in and that I still practice and so forth, it's, you know, family is stressed in that. And it was just one of those things. I was, I was always in this inner conflict and it's just super hard to like explain it. But at that particular point, we were still married so much conflict until it finally boiled over. And you thought I was depressed and, and anxious then. What actually really tipped me over to the point though, Brock, was the divorce itself. We had a pretty big blowout um, as far as, I don't know, the last fight that we had. Two days before my 25th birthday is when she left the house and she took off, right? And that was another thing. I just was always like, I, I like to handle my problems face to face. I've always been that way. And my ex-wife was the one who would always, she just preferred to not be there. So she'd leave. That's how she handled it. And that's okay. Everyone d- does things differently. But to me, it, that would just infuriate me. Well, she went to go tell her parents and left the house. Ironically enough, though, the first two years prior to that, She'd always come back, but she didn't come back this time. Uh, she came back when I wasn't home and served me with divorce papers, which I knew were coming, but then we went through the divorce process. And I guess I can get into that, but I don't know if there was any additional questions for me there to break down before I start vomiting out of the mouth. I do. I want to ask a couple questions. I think we know now is that coming into a relationship like that, man, you're bringing all your traumas in. And they're at 23 years old, you don't know how to cope with these things. You don't know how to handle them. And, and so, like, I, there's no manual for relationships. And sometimes I'm like, man, I wish there was. I wish I could go back. I mean, I've been divorced twice, man. I'm on my third marriage. So you are speaking. I'm hearing this. I'm, like, almost over here, like, oh, my gosh, dude, I'm being triggered by what you're saying. Because I remember the, my first marriage, it was such a toxic time. And I'm like, is it me? Am I just, like, really mentally struggling with this because I've never felt this in my life, like that I couldn't fix something, you know? So what was the biggest struggle that you guys were facing? Was it, was it mental illness? Was it ability to communicate? What do you feel like it was? You know, I think it was pride. Um, I've done a lot of counseling since then and just self-reflection. I think it was pride, but it was pride on both ends. And I can get into this deeper when we get a little further into the story, but the communication comes, that's part of the communication issues that we had, Brock. It was, it was pride, man. It was one person not wanting to be wrong. And see, at the beginning of the marriage, the honeymoon stage, it was like, oh, it's okay. Like we laugh it off and stuff. But then as you get into like later parts of the marriage, those things aren't funny anymore when there's certain conflicts and, and just the smallest things were setting us off. Like we want to hang out with this group of friends this weekend. Well, I don't want to hang out with them. I want to hang out with this person or just stay home. And then that just, it would blow up into something that didn't need to blow up. But because we were so prideful and we were so opinionated and so young and inexperienced in our marriage, those stupid little things would end up being the biggest thing where like, I literally didn't want to see her and she definitely didn't want to see me. And we had some very negative feelings towards one another. Okay. Stupid question. What was the last fight about? Do you even remember? I do remember. It was so silly. So it's hard for me to actually like 
dive deep into that because there was so much, like you said, there's so much trauma, but there's so much baggage in our marriage that kind of led up to that. So it's hard to say that was our last fight. It was something that had stemmed for like, since the day I ever met her, she didn't like if I ever had a friend that was a female. Um, that was one of the things that I struggle with a lot in our marriage. Cause I have a lot of friends. I'm just open about with everybody. And she didn't like if I had friends that were females. And so if I talked to anybody that was a friend of mine, uh, it was a problem. I still, to this day, don't agree with that. I know some people will, I mean, I know there's women out there that are like, nah, you can't have friends of the opposite sex. And I, I understand there are people with different opinions than me, but I think that that's, my wife has friends that are males and I have friends that are females and most of them we're all pretty close together with, but like, it's just insane. So yeah, she didn't like that. I had a friend that was of the opposite sex and that I had spoken to that individual as a friend. To me, it's so juvenile, Brock. And that's what I struggle with so much in our divorce was that it was so juvenile. I was like, this is like high school. It's not even high school. This is like middle school where I, it's not like I cheated on anybody. It's not like I did. I can't believe we're having this argument kind of th situation. And I know that sounds crazy. Like I'm not taking ownership, but that's exactly how I felt. I was like, I literally can't believe this is an argument right now. And it ultimately was like, that was the piece, but then all the stuff from before comes to the surface. You know what I mean? And so that's why I laugh about it, but it was, it was pretty bad. It's crazy that that's the fight that you're going to, the heel you're dying on. I'm with you. So let's go. So tell me what you were like in those emotions. What were you feeling? Because how did you handle your stressors? Right? Because if you think about it, when we start talking about mental health, it includes emotional, psychological, social well-being. It affects the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act. I mean, like it's an total encompassing. And when we're off, oh man, we are off. So. What were some of the symptoms if someone would have looked into your life and they get a, an eagle side view of, of down into your life? What were they seeing? Was it anger? Was it frustration? How, how did you identify that there was some struggling with this mental wellness in your life? This is where it's interesting, right? Um, I could just say pride and all this stuff was part of the, the marriage piece, but my mental illness and depression hit an all-time high. Like I didn't know what it was. I, I really didn't know. I thought I knew until the divorce was final. So I'll get into that piece to kind of give you an eye of what people were, like what someone would understand what I, how I was reacting. Because Brock, when I went through the divorce, while I still say, hey, all, we had all this trouble and we were fighting and all this stuff, people in a marriage understand that you still love the other person, right? So I was actually, she left and we had to put our house up for sale. And all of my life that I knew up until then completely flipped upside down. So I want to give people a little context to where I was. I was 25 years old, just turned 25 because she left two days before my 25th birthday. And it takes a little while. When you go through a divorce, you can't just sign a paper, boom, boom, and it's done. You have to wait. <laughs> you have to pay for one to get a divorce, which is stupid. Two, you actually have to wait for the papers to come in. In the meantime, I'm living at this house that we had just, we had bought. We were in there for a year together. She left. So I'm living in the house that we lived in together, that we bought together. And that was playing a, a mind trick on me if you want to just keep it clean. I was so messed up. Every day I was coming to this house, I was definitely sad. People will say, well, you were so angry. Why, why did you care? No, I still loved her. And I was still fighting for the marriage to work. And I was trying to right the wrongs. I was admitting stuff that I never did just so that I could get her to stop fighting with me so that we could try to get to the bottom of some stuff. And we couldn't get to that point. But I was for three and a half weeks, the end of August, all the way through September, every day, I still had to go to work. I still had school. I was going to college. I had responsibilities. We had dogs that were there that I had to take care of, which I still have to this day. Those are my dogs. Like there were responsibilities as an adult that I had to take care of. And it sucked because it plays mind tricks on you. I knew my life at, that I knew at that point was completely changed. We were going to be putting the house up for sale. 
um, I knew that I didn't make enough money at that time to live on my own. And so I was going to be moving back to mom and dad's house. I was going to be a 25-year-old divorced member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so uh, Mormons, right? I was a divorced 25-year-old Mormon male living at mom and dad's house, working in a call center. That's how I had, I had labeled myself at that particular point in my life because I was still in school and I was trying to work my work while I was going to school. And so that's, if you have to understand that that's where my mind was at, because I couldn't see anything else besides here's what I'm about to be in about a couple of weeks when I finally get out of this house and I go back to mom and dad's. So that's where I was every single day, Brock. I was just sad, depressed. I didn't want to go home, but I had to go home because I had responsibilities. I had dogs to take care of. I had a house to take care of. I had to get things cleaned up so that we could move a lot of stuff going on. So in the midst of all that, as it gradually got worse and worse and worse throughout those couple of weeks until I hit a, a pretty big breaking point. If someone were to look down that bird's eye view, like you were saying, it was complete darkness. So when I would be out and about, I had a smile on my face. When I came home, it was darkness. People don't even understand the state of mind I was in when I came home. You want to talk about suicidal? I didn't want to be there anymore. I couldn't see where I was going. I couldn't see the light. Everyone's like, oh, it'll get better. My brother-in-law had gone through a divorce and he even told me, he's like, Listen, man, I know you can't see it now, but it'll be fine. People want to help you and they mean well. I literally, Brock, could not see the end goal. I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel because I was in the thick of the storm. So it was darkness. I didn't want to hang out with people. I was so sad that I didn't want to be alone, but I also didn't feel like socializing. And that makes no sense to some people. But I remember texting that to my buddy who was calling to check in on me, texting me to check in on me. And I was like, dude, I, I don't know how to explain it. I don't want to go out and hang out with people. So I appreciate you reaching out, but I also don't want to be alone. That's a scary place to be because it puts other people in a hard place too because they don't know how to react. So how did you avoid the, because I know suicidal ideations, there's a big difference. I think a lot of us have suicidal ideations, but to actually go through and start planning it, there's a big difference in that, if that makes sense. And so were you at the like just thinking process or were you, had you gone down the road like, if I was going to do this as hypothetical, I'm killing myself. Like, have, did you go down there? Were you that distraught? So, yeah, I agree with you. There are a lot of people who like think about it, but it becomes more real when you actually start planning it. Right. And I don't talk to a lot of people about this. So I apologize if I get a little bit emotional. But uh, yeah, man, I uh, there was a day. Am I allowed to bring up faith in this? Like any kind of faith stories, bring this up because it does play a huge part in it. So the day we signed our divorce papers, I remember I had to go to the courthouse that day. I was working, have you? She's texting me saying, hey, can we change the time of when you're supposed to meet? Down? And like, so here we are fighting like times. I'm like, no, I'm working. I have to, I told them I'd be an hour to leave for lunch. Like I couldn't just, I have to leave at this particular time because I scheduled it out. So here we are fighting about our divorce papers for crying out loud. I'm like, oh, this is so fitting. We can't even figure this piece out and whatever, you know, and it was just a bad day. I go sign the divorce papers. And like I said, like they make it really fun for you when you get divorced. You have to pay. I wasn't like raking in the dough. So you have to pay. It was like a hundred and some bucks, 200 bucks to file for divorce. Then you have to buy your own stamps. So I had to go, I couldn't just file it. I told her I'd take care of it after we signed our papers and whatever. We were at the courthouse together. We were all good to go. Then they tell me, well, you need to get a stamp. So I had to drive across the street to the Winco that was in Boise, Idaho, go get some stamps. It was just a mess of a day. Go and sit that, like, you know, fill it out, send it to the judge. The judge was kind of like, she was like sitting there. She was going to send it out. And she was just looking at me like, I'm this disgusting person. That's how I felt, right? Like she's looking at this young kid who's getting divorced and like, yeah, it sucks to be you. Look at you. And she's probably goes through this all the time, but she's like, okay, well, we'll send it off and it'll be a few weeks before you hear back, but it's not final until we sign off on it. And so I was like, great, awesome. And so there was a lot going on in my head. My ex-wife takes off. So I'm handling all this. I was late to getting back to work that day. Just a mess of a day. 
And that, Brock, is when everything just kind of flooded into my mind. It had been, you know, three and a half, four weeks since she had left. And those three and a half, four weeks were just absolute hell for me. Like I said, going home, I had to get myself in a routine. I'd get up in the morning, 5.30, get up, go to work by 7. I'd go work out or go to football practice because we were playing flag football for City League. So I'd go, we'd practice as a team. I'd come home by 7, 8 o'clock. I'd pop some sleeping pills. I'd go to bed and I'd do the same thing. I'd make sure my dogs were fed. And I'd, I just went in this routine every single day to try to get through every day. And that day when we signed the divorce papers, I remember getting home, dude. And that was, that was when I kind of just hit this like all the flood of everything. I was like, okay, so it's officially over. Like my life is literally completely flipped upside down. Like I got to sell this house. I got to move in with mom and dad. I'm never going to date again because all these girls don't probably want to divorce 25 year old kid who can't, he's working in a call center right now, hasn't even graduated college, all, all those things that were thrown through my mind. So that's when I said, okay, I'm out, dude. I'm out. I'm done with this. I don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I've been trying to find it for the last four weeks. Can't find it. So just understand my head was in a complete, it had flipped on me. And I don't know how to explain that other than just saying that it flipped on me. It was like, I was okay with leaving because I just didn't want to have to go through the pain anymore. You think you know pain until you actually have to go through pain and do it for an extensive amount of time. So that day I actually did plan it out. I came home, man. And I told myself, all right, I'm going to get my dogs taken care of. And so I apologize that this gets deep for people. So just understand this is, uh, it could be a trigger warning. I don't know. But my dogs were there. My two dogs, Alba and Cyrus, two black labs, which by the way, in the divorce, I specifically told her, do not touch my dogs. Those are the ones that I'm taking. You left me with them to take care of them. Those are my, my, I'm taking them. I was going to find a way to take care of my dogs. I wasn't going to, she told me to rehouse them if I couldn't handle it. So I said, no, I'm an adult. I will take care of my dogs. So just so you guys know, my dogs are my saving grace. So I said, okay, I'm going to get my dogs their food. They'll have enough food for two days. My mom, who lives about four miles down the road, had me on what we call suicide watch for the last month prior to that anyway. She was driving by my work every day to make sure I was there. She knew I was sad. She was just trying to make sure I was good. She'd drive by my house to make sure I was at my house at night. She always knew I was there. So I was like, I know my mom will check on me. So I'm going to get my dogs their food to have two days worth of food. Because if she doesn't hear from me for two days, she'll be over here. I know that for a fact. So I knew that for a fact. My mom, bless her heart, she's an angel. So go into my kitchen. I grab a knife. I said, okay, I'm just, I'm out of here. Let's do it. I got my dogs taken care of. I told them goodnight. I was crying with them, man. I cried. I taught, I gave them kisses. I love my dogs, dude. They were amazing. Walk back in the house, get the knife and I'm walking up the stairs, Brock. And here's where I was like, dude, I was in so much pain, so much pain of just fear and depression and everything. So I knelt down and I remember having this feeling. I had the knife with me and I was like, okay, this, I'm just going to end it here and it'll be fine. So I go upstairs, get into my bedroom, kneel down next to my bed. And I was kneeling there and I felt this like overwhelming feeling of just like, you need to reach out to God, like reach out to him right now. And I didn't want to, cause I was in so much pain, and, but I was also very scared. If anyone has ever gone through or been very close to a suicide attempt, you do have a fear it, while you're comfortable with the idea. It is a very scary thing when you're that close to doing it because everything starts flashing before your eyes. For me, I started reaching out to God and I believe in a guy named Joseph Smith. And I've read a, a lot about his stories. Now he's an actual man, whether you believe in, in the same faith as I do or not, Joseph Smith did live on this earth and he did experience the things he experienced. And there was a time where he was experiencing a lot of issues in his hometown, a lot of his friends and family members getting killed and persecuted all over. And he was in a jail. And one day he was experiencing so much pain. He reached out and he said, Hey God, you know, like, Oh God, where art thou? was what he said. And when I was kneeling there, I literally physically opened up my arms and I said, I got nothing left. And I just started talking to him. I said, I got nothing left, man. What is there? And the exact same 
like it was unbelievable, Brock. I was crying. I was bawling because I was so in so much pain. Nobody was there. I wasn't putting on a show for anybody. It's not like no, anybody was going to know this. I was bawling. And I remember it as clear as day, just the feeling. And I just, I could, I replayed this movie. There's a movie about Joseph Smith, that, that exact scene that I was talking about right there, where the Lord speaks back to him and says, My son, peace be unto thy soul. And afflictions and thy adversities are but for a small moment, is basically what he says. They're basically just for a small moment. They're going to pass. And as I sat there, I replayed that whole entire scene in my head. And I remember just thinking, he's speaking to me as he's spoken to Joseph, as he's spoken to many other human beings on this earth, all of God's children. He's spoken to them all. We will go through this. And so that was the night where I just felt this overwhelming feeling of peace, even though I was still scared. But I said, okay, I put the knife down on my floor next to my bed. And I just started talking to my, my heavenly father and I straight up told him, I said, okay, I don't know what this next time entails, but you're, I'm yours. So I'm going to trust you. And I'm not kidding, man. The difference of the feeling in my home, even amazing. It felt like there was such a darkness inside of my home for a month that night after that moment, it almost felt like it all cleared up. And it was like, it wasn't like I felt great, but it was like, you're going to get through this. It gave me a little hope. Man, that's a good story, man. That's I, I can feel it. I'm just gonna second the fact that I'm glad that you're you're still here and you're still shining, man. I mean, what a what a what a story. So why today are you helping people? I know you're doing some coaching. You're helping young men, and I don't know if they're women or, but I know you do a lot with young men with mental health. How are you? How does that story help you with this, man? I want to share with people because. Like I said, Brock, no one knew that I was struggling unless you were very, very close to me and I told you that I was struggling. No one knew I was struggling. So I know the pressures that these kids go through at a young age and even adults too. I don't want to exclude the adults. So coaching these young athletes that, are, that I coach now that are like 16, 17 years old, I'm around a lot of the youth. They come from different backgrounds. Maybe mom and dad don't have a lot of money, but they want to put on a face like they can you know, roll with the, the high rollers, you know, these schools that have a ton of money. So they, they want to fit in. So maybe they've stolen a few things to try to look good because mom and dad can't buy for him. And so like they struggle with that self image and they struggle with those types of decisions that they make. And, and I want them to know like, it's okay. Like I went through that in my adult life, right? I went through that in my adult life and I want to make sure that they snip that when they're younger, because I don't want them to get to that point. I feel terrible for people who are at that point because I can empathize with them now. And do I still struggle? Absolutely. I had to go to a lot of counseling after my divorce. I had to go to a lot of those things. I still have seen counselors and I've and I've spoken about this stuff. And I still reach out to my my heavenly father for help on a daily basis for the things that I struggle with now. Addictions to to sleeping medication, Brock. Like I I, I mean, even after that experience, I was for two and a half years straight. I had NyQuil lined up in my cabinet and people will say, okay, cool. NyQuil. That's not, that's not that big. Okay. You sound like an idiot. Well, it's true though, because like I was taking a NyQuil, it would take me two nights to finish a bottle. I'd take a half a bottle of NyQuil and two Unisoms. That is so unhealthy. And then I couldn't sleep without it. I had trained my brain to like not be able to sleep without sleeping medication. So then literally it played mind tricks. on me. my brain would flip on me all the time. So for like two and a half years, I was struggling with that. So I want to let people know that it's okay one to struggle, but you do need to find help. And you can, I want them to be able to trust in someone like myself. Like, Hey, my situation may not be your same situation, but I'm here to listen. And I want to be able to listen and be a sounding board because sometimes people just need to talk. You know what I mean? You know, you brought up that image thing. I think for us being older, it's easier for us, even growing up. Now these kids, everything they do is image, everything, everything they post, everything they wear. Can you imagine me? like? 
Dude, being critiqued for everything you do. I mean, we we do, especially because we are in the limelight. But I mean, most people don't have to deal with that. But these kids these days, man, that you are speaking my language. And I appreciate the fact that you are one of those guys. You're a sheepdog, man, that these kids can go to. I want to hear this rock, your rock bottom. And I'm sure that's where you were at. But what was your pivot point, man? What does it look like today? And how do you cope with the mental wellness today? Yeah, man. So the beautiful thing about going through struggles, and I'm, I know you can relate to this, and a lot of people can. Your guests that you've had on this show before, they can relate. Rock bottom means something different for everybody. But that moment where I was literally at the end of my rope, like that was it. The night that I, that I had decided how I was going to do it, I had a knife with me. I knew exactly what was going to happen, where I was going to do it, and I had planned it all out. That was my rock bottom. And that experience lifted me out of it. Now, that did not mean I won't go through struggles anymore, right? To this day, like my, my pivot point really when getting over the divorce happened, like it was weird, man, because I was living at my, my parents' house and we, we were still waiting to sell our other house. It was still up for sale and stuff. And it just sounds weird to say that, but once it actually did sell, which was, I believe, the very end of November, beginning of December. So we divorced in September. She left in August, went all the way until December. So there was like a four-month cloud of just darkness in my, my life of just where am I going with things? I wasn't dating anybody, all this stuff. As soon as we sold our house, for some reason, as stupid as that sounds, that was when my life like clicked. I was like, okay, okay. I'm not tied to this person anymore. Let's move on and, and do our very best to move on and, and take care of the future. So that has been my, my outlook ever since. Have I gone through issues? Yeah. There's been drama that's happened in my life where I've lost relationships with very, very close friends of mine, which has been just as bad as a, as a divorce, to be quite honest. Um, a lot of shifts that have happened and where I felt I've been wronged many a times. But the whole point of this is, is go back to those moments and I say, okay, I know that I've been in a bad situation and I know there is light at the end of the tunnel now. Whereas before I couldn't see it. When I was in the middle of the thick of things during my divorce, I couldn't see it. So now when I'm going through struggles, one, I know my, my heavenly father. My, I know that God has a plan for me. I, I know there's light at the end of the tunnel. I just have to get there. What I do to use a sports analogy, I've seen counselors. I, I'm a big proponent of therapists and counselors. I think that people should see them. They're trained professionals for a reason. I think that they have a skill set that is unique. I've seen them and I've implemented things into my own life to understand how to get through certain things. So now when I'm going through a struggle, like just even two weeks ago, I was struggling hardcore. Work is super busy. My full-time job is super busy. I've got a kid on the way. We're going to have our third kid. Well, that changes things too. Got to get a new car for a third kid. There's a lot of more expenses that come with that. And there's some you know, things that happen. And I got three businesses I'm running on the side. There's a lot of stress that came in. But what I tell my kids, Brock, when you're in a basketball game, I'm going to use basketball as an example. And you know, the other team goes on this 10-0 run. They're just killing you. You get the ball stolen from you, dunk. You miss a shot, they get the rebound, come down, hit a three. Next thing you know, they steal another pass, come down. Hit. And before you know it, it's a 10-0 run. The coach is like screaming, timeout. This is, oh, and he's mad. People are yelling at the referees. People are yelling at each other on the bench. That's called the storm, okay? And it happens in almost every single game that you watch in a basketball game. There's always a storm. The best athletes are the ones who can navigate through the storm. It doesn't mean you're not going to get hit, but it means, okay, how do we navigate? How do we breathe? How do we control this situation until you can get through the storm? And that's, that's the reality of life. How do you navigate the storm? And sometimes I've always said it, the storm doesn't mean you're going to have clear roads. It might just mean that, if you can navigate the storm and just focus, maybe you might only see that white line on the side of the road, but you know where your tires are supposed to go and it's foggy and it's, it's stormy, but at least you can navigate to get through it to when the, the sky clears up. And so now for me, I know, I know for a fact there will be an opening. I don't know when, but there will be an opening in the clouds. So I know 
that I just need to navigate the storm. And that helps me with my mindset every day. I make sure I work out. I make sure that I'm saying my prayers. I'm making sure that I'm doing the things that I need to do to take care of myself and that the Lord will handle the rest until the clouds part again and I'm good to go. So tell me how your prior relationship, how do you keep it from coming into this relationship? That's a tough one, huh? I'd be lying if I said I haven't actually had that issue. And my wife, bless her heart, man, she's amazing. My wife is the most incredible person. What a blessing from God that she was sent to me. So we know that there, there's been times where I'm like, oh man, this is like this reminds me of my first marriage. I'll say stupid things like that because it's like going through. And you know, she's amazing for like understanding why I, the frustrations and why I might be saying those things. But I've tried my hardest to not bring those types of things in because my wife is so much different than my ex-wife, which is everyone's unique, right? My wife is so much different than my ex-wife. It's literally the perfect match. My my aunt always says, I'm so glad you took a right when you could have taken a left. You did a, you did the right thing. So I just do my best to, one, I grew up. I was young and I used to say things based off of emotion way more than I do now. People that know me would be like, dude, you're always popping off, but not even close to what I used to. Like in basketball games, they'll hear me playing sports and I'm always saying something. But like out of frustration, I do not say things. I wait to speak. <laughs> so you'd be amazed at what waiting like 10 seconds before speaking, what you actually want to say would do to your thought process. I think that could do a lot of people a lot of wonders, right? Like at work, maybe before you hit send, type out that email, take your hands off the keyboard and look first for take a couple breaths and then see if you really want to hit send after that email. You know, same concept in my marriage. I try not to bring those things, those negative things that I knew into this. And I know that if I don't do those things, then there won't be the same reaction on the other end. And so it's helped immensely since then. And that's why we have a healthy marriage. It's strong. We're in a great spot because I've learned from the mistakes that I made in the past. This was awesome, dude. I totally appreciate it. We could go in a thousand different directions. I told you, told you we'd keep it under 45 minutes. But man, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate who you are. If you could leave one message to the listeners, what would you tell them? Just keep swinging. You know what I mean? Swing, swing. That's what you got to do in life. You got to swing. I'll, I'll use one last analogy, Brock, to end the show with you. Boxing. My boxing coach always told me when I was fighting for golden gloves, he said, you can't win a fight playing defense. And I always thought it was funny. He goes, you'll see all these guys that can bob and weave and do their thing and it's hard to hit them. But a, a ref will never give you the fight if you don't punch back. You can look all fancy and jab, move around. You got to punch back. Even if you're getting hit, you got to punch back because you will not win a fight if you don't punch. You will not win a football game if you don't score points, get a field goal or a touchdown or something. You won't win a basketball game if you don't put the ball in the bucket. So your defense can be amazing, but if you can't score, you don't win. So I always tell people, swing back. You might be taking a lot of hits, and that's okay. You can take shots. That's part of life, getting, getting hit. But you make sure that as soon as you get enough base underneath of you that you swing back because you cannot win unless you swing. Okay, game time guru, who wins the Super Bowl? I'm a Joe Burrow fan, so I'm going with the Bengals, man. I'm sorry. I, I don't dislike the Rams. I love Matt Stafford, but I am going with Burrow because he was an Ohio State guy before he went to LSU, so I've always been a fan of his. I knew you were going to be. I knew you were that guy. I'm going for the Rams. I'm a Stafford guy. And, uh, yeah, let's get together again, man. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for chasing the vase, being, being just so open and willing, man. The, your message, people get to see your face. They get to know who you are, and we can debunk this message that uh, mental illness is just going to keep killing us, and it's, it's not true. The message is communicate with each other, man. Connection's the cure, right? I'll throw it out to September. 
up there in Idaho. That's the greatest message that any of us could give. So thank you, brother. I appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the show. Appreciate you, man. Thanks so much, Brock. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.